0: kubernetes community and welcome to the pod cuddle podcast i'm your host brian Gracely, and over to my right is my co-host tyler Britton. tyler how are you today
1: doing pretty good brian
0: we are doing the initial episode of pod cuddle why in the world are we doing yet another podcast the world is full of podcasts these days
1: well i think it's uh you know i think there might be room for one more okay um (laughs) with uh we're about to find out though i guess
0: yeah so you know I, i think we uh, you know, for, for those of you listening, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, this podcast is going to be about um, kind of all things containers, Kubernetes. Uh, Tyler and I both work for Red Hat, so we're going to cover some of the, you know, Red Hat technologies like OpenShift and, and some of the other uh, container-related stuff. But we, I think we kind of felt like there wasn't a show that if you really are into containers, cloud-native computing, Kubernetes uh, there wasn't a show that week in and week out you could kind of find out what's going on in the community, and so we wanted to. We're going to try and fill that void, um, Tyler. For folks that that don't know you, um, they should. But if they don't know you, give us just a little bit of your background, some of your interests, uh, what you what you do day to day.
1: Sure. So uh, as you said, uh, we both work for Red Hat. I work in the uh, OpenShift uh, tech marketing uh, team, doing uh, you know some tech marketing work and you know, putting together demos and content and and fun stuff like that. Uh, before that, I worked for uh, Blue Box and IBM and uh, EMC before that. And back in the day, I was actually even in IT. So it's uh, kind of how I ended up here. Yeah. And besides uh, all, all things interesting, containers, uh, also on the side, I like to uh, brew some beer and fly airplanes. But not at the same time, I okay. promise. <laughs>
0: Well, and we're, uh, you know, we're in the middle of August. We're a couple of weeks from college football season. We may uh, throw in a college football reference from here to, from here, to here and there. Uh, we may throw in a barbecue reference. Um, so very cool. So um, we're going to, you know, for, for anyone, you know, listening to this, Um, like we said, we both work for red hat. The intention of this show is, uh, not for it to be a a vendor specific show. Um, there will be from time to time, some, some stuff about red hat when it makes sense when it's relevant. Um, but the goal is very much to have a really nice mix of stuff that's going on in the community. Lots of things from, you know, lots of different, whether they're open source projects or vendors, uh, you know, public cloud services and so forth. So, um, you know, when it makes sense and, and you want to listen into it, um, you know, listen in for the community stuff. If you want to dig into some of the Red Hat stuff, uh, we'll try and have that when uh, when there's new stuff available to you. So we'll listen. Uh, so very cool. So um, we, oh, and one a couple other things. Um, the goal for this is we're going to do this weekly uh, as much as as much as possible uh, travel and other things uh, bearing. And the goal for this is to have this out uh, first thing Monday morning. So your first cup of coffee Monday morning, uh, jump in with the uh, pod cuddle podcast and uh, we uh, will hopefully bring you good information every week. So, Tyler, why don't we why don't we jump into it? Um, let's uh, let's jump into sort of what's going on in the Kubernetes community, the CNCF community this week. What sort of news have we got?
1: Uh, I think the big the big one was uh, Amazon Web Services joined the uh, CNCF, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, uh, as a platinum member. Uh, so I think that uh, that made a lot of waves in the community.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people were. Yeah, you know, there was there was sort of this uh, undercurrent where people were saying, well, you know, every other major cloud provider is uh, offering native Kubernetes services or contributing Kubernetes. Uh, you know, is it is it the world versus AWS? And and uh, I think uh you know which is great for the whole community AWS has decided um you know mostly based on people running their own kubernetes on top of AWS that it made sense to be in the community so uh we're we're all really excited Adrian Cockcroft is going to be on the the CNCF board and um uh, we're all really excited to see AWS start making uh, open contributions to whether it's kubernetes or or any of the CNCF projects
1: Yeah I think it'll be uh, it'll be exciting to see what stuff they want to work on you know like you said where they contribute and kind of how they interact uh, with the community as a whole. Obviously, AWS is a is a big time open source uh, consumer, open source software consumer, uh, and they've been you know starting to contribute more and more. So be uh, be exciting to see what they do here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The other news that came out of uh, out of the, the CNCF, and we won't always do CNCF community news, but uh, thought this was interesting. Um, for a while, the CNCF used to have a really large cluster of uh, of available computing nodes that that Intel had donated. Um, Intel had moved away from that, but a company called Packet is now sort of stepping up in that role and providing a, a really nice large. Uh, interoperability lab. So um, you know that, that's cool. I know at Red Hat we've done a bunch of large scale, you know, n- numerous hundreds, couple thousand node um, interop testing. So that's it's great for the community to have those sort of resources, especially when they want to do large scale stuff. Yeah,
1: I thought what was interesting is they they called out too that it's not just x86. There's also some ARM uh, compute in there as well. So you know if you're if you're currently developing something. Um, and you want to, uh, you know, tr- change, change CPU architectures for, for whatever reason They're, they have those capabilities in there too.
0: Yeah, now that'll be cool. and It'll be cool to see, you know, if they introduce GPUs or like you said, any other, any other, uh, you know, CPU type in there. I mean, heck, we, we even get requests sometimes for people to run things like COBOL in containers and stuff. So, uh, it's it definitely a, a good space to have to, to go experiment with stuff. You know, like we said, we're not always going to talk about Red Hat stuff, but in the context of, of what's news this week, uh, the Red Hat OpenShift team announced that their version 3.6 uh, is now GA. What, is, what does that mean in the context of Kubernetes and and uh, the rest of, of the industry?
1: Well, I think uh, the, the easiest uh, shorthand also is uh, whatever the dot release for OpenShift is the, the underlying Kubernetes dot release. So we're talking uh, Kubernetes 1.6 here. Uh, and it's just the usual, you know, Take the upstream, um, add some additional capabilities, um, and then it becomes the OpenShift Origin project. So that is that is obviously fully typical Red Hat. It's fully open source as well, and brought some brought some new capabilities. Um, the 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 most interesting one to me was actually the the service catalog tech preview.
0: Yeah, no, it was. Uh, and and for those of you that don't know, um, you know the service catalog. Concept. So back in the fall, uh, both the CNCF, uh, the CNCF community members, um, Red Hat, and, and a bunch of other companies, sort of were were looking at how do you plug in third party resources. And you know, you obviously, you always have one of two options: you can build your own, start from scratch, build your own, or look around for a, a, a good, available, existing project. And at the time, they actually looked around um, at the Cloud Foundry Foundation looked at their service broker and said, "You know, there's a lot of things there we like. Can we work together with you guys?" And and a, and a project called the Open Service Broker API uh, came out of that. I think if you go to openservicebrokerapi.org, you can find the details. But uh, yeah, so you know, roughly nine months uh, of development work to decouple that from being Cloud Foundry specific. It now runs great on Kubernetes. It's now kind of cloud independent. Um, so yeah, that's cool. Give, give folks a sense of like, what are some of the things you're going to be able to do with uh, with the service broker?
1: Well, um, you know, if you're not familiar with the concept, uh, like, like you said, it's been in Cloud Foundry for, for a while. Um, it's the ability to ask for resources uh, as a developer, or as, as an application, and get them delivered to you. So say, for example, your web-based app needs a database backend what you can do, it's so. What, and what's a common kind of use case with with Kubernetes is you would run a pod for your front end app, and then a pod running your your persistence store, Mongo or, or you know or SQL or whatever. Uh, what now is you as a as a developer, you can just ask for an external so- source from the broker, and the broker basically requests it and then gives you the credentials so that way your app can access it. So it could be something, you know, that's else running, something else running your data center. It could be from a public cloud provider. Um, You know, one of the first examples of this actually we, we talked about at, at the, uh, and announced at the Red Hat summit was using that broker to deliver, you know, with our AWS partnership, a bunch of the AWS services. So that way, if you're, you know, running OpenShift, you can, you know, request an RDS instance or a load balancer. You know, any of those services without having to even go into the console, you could just do it right from OpenShift.
0: Right. Yeah, and I, and I think people were excited about that for for a couple of reasons. I mean, the one that jumped out uh, at Red Hat Summit because of the AWS partnership was people kind of uh, you know were, were latching onto this idea that like, hey, you're making the AWS services feel local to OpenShift, right? They still run physically in AWS's data center, but they're going to feel local to OpenShift. And I think, you know, the more I've been thinking about that, um, you know, it's going to be great for developers because they're going to be able to say, hey, uh, I want a service and they're going to easily be able to get out from a catalog. I think from from an operations team perspective, it's it's going to be pretty powerful because they've been struggling for the last couple of years to figure out like, how do I manage shadow IT? Like developers can just go around me. um, I'm going to have no idea what services they're running, how much cost they're running up, you know, are they, you know, exposing sensitive information that they shouldn't be. This is going to kind of give them a way to to get their arms around some of the shadow IT without, um, you know, without sort of saying, Hey, you can't use those services. So I think that's going to be a really interesting thing. And, just to kind of highlight to people, um, before you get super excited, this is still in what's sort of called technology preview. So you can get the bits, you can play around with them. It's just uh, not at all recommended at this point until the uh, the 3.7 release that you use it for production. So um, the other thing that was interesting about that announcement was, you know, I think a lot of people associate, you know, OpenShift, the service broker with the AWS partnership, Talk a little bit, there's also, uh, we're, we're integrating kind of all of the Ansible playbooks, that whole community and universe of playbooks to be on the back end of the service broker. Give folks just a, a basic sense of like, well, what does that mean? What does that open up for them?
1: Well, I mean, if you think about, like you said, a service broker is a, you know, conceptually pretty simple, right? So um, as a application user, I request something, um, it has you know, a a configuration that says how it goes and gets that something for me, and then it waits to get the, you know, details back from that something to how to use it. So um, that something, in this case, could be Ansible. So in this case, we had the, uh, you know, Ansible service broker, where you can then say, hey, I need a database. And what that could actually do is, you know, kick off an Ansible playbook that you already have you know in the whole world of ansible playbooks that are out there if you're already using ansible internally uh, to kick those things off so that way a developer can ask for something and ansible can go and execute that so i think it, it takes that the power of the service broker um, but then makes it easy for you to start giving those services say say on prem for example if you're you have uh, developers that ask for um say Oracle databases or something like that, you can have it just, you know, use Ansible to get those and pass them to the developer.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's I think it's gonna be a powerful thing. Um because we you know there are so many people that use Ansible. It's it's you know part of sort of the 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 toolbox for a lot of DevOps teams, you know, to give to deploy infrastructure resources. And, and uh, it just opens up a lot more things from what developers can get access to or, or what operations teams want to give them access to. So, well, that's, that stuff's very cool. And like you said, that, that kind of probably was the, um, the big highlight of the 3.6 release. Uh, but there's a couple others that are pretty powerful, although they, they may seem, you know, a little less sexy, there's some work in there, uh, that was done, uh, again, all this stuff is, is upstreamed into Kubernetes and then it, it comes back, uh, through the OpenShift origin project and into OpenShift, um, around, uh, con- um, secret management. So there's a, some security capabilities around how you manage secrets. What does all that mean? And, and why did people want better secret management?
1: Uh, so, I mean, if you think about the, uh, one of the, one of the powerful things about, you know, uh, developing, you know, using containers and using a modern app dev platform like like OpenShift or, or Kubernetes is um, kind of developing, you know, that software and packaging it up, uh, you know, the the actual code artifacts, but at the same time, not doing separate builds for dev and prod and and, and things like that. So because it kind of defeats the whole purpose. If you, if you do right. one build in, in dev and you do another one in QA and then you have a different one for prod, you never really tested the prod one until you actually ran it. So um, one of the ways you can kind of maintain the same code set, but run it in different environments is by passing secrets to the, um, you know, to the software. So that way you're not hard coding say what backend database you're using, or you're not hard coding passwords and, and stuff like that. So they can be, hand it off through the uh you know as part of it so that way the same the same container could be run in dev, QA and and, and prod. Okay.
0: So if, if I'm if I if I think about this, you know, we obviously have had a way for a long time of of tagging containers or tagging environments that you know, like you said, could be QA, prod, it could be a version of a of a release. Um, the system can kind of move resources based on a, a tag. This is now saying Um, as, as they get moved around, let's be more granular, more secure about saying, Hey, I'm now in this environment, give me the proper security credentials to, you know, talk to another system, talk to a database. Um, and I, I think this was something that, um, you know, holistically the, the Kubernetes community, uh, some people had pushed back on the Kubernetes community and said, "Hey um you know you, you build great scalable systems you got to think about security a little bit more um, This closed one of those loopholes for for a lot of people in terms of hey um i, I don 't have to worry about that too much anymore
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely i mean that 's the the you know, the best credentials you can have the best credentials are ones you don 't have right? right so um you know not having um, the developers or even you know ops people have to make sure that they're configuring them inside the application and and stuff like that really you know makes it a, m- a much more secure environment. You have less places to to worry about where they're exposed and, and need to be changed and things like that.
0: Yep, makes it make it simpler for the auditors and, and simpler for the for the security teams. Um, you know, speaking of security, you know one of the areas that a lot of companies have to worry about is is PCI compliance. So anybody who's dealing with credit cards or electronic payments. Um, we came out with, uh, not so much a feature in OpenShift 3.6, but a set of guidelines for how to do, um, PCI, uh, you know, set up and, and, and auditing compliance, um, give folks a sense of like, what is, what does a document like that mean for them? And, um, how would they, how would they use it in, in reality?
1: Sure. One of the, th- I think one of the confusions you get from people who don't work in, uh, compliant industries is that. Um, as a vendor you can you can have something kind of turnkey compliant. Uh, but but anyone that works in, in those fields know that it's it's an approach. It's you know there's a lot of pieces to it. So really what it's about doing is how how do I you know meet those requirements in a way using various technologies um, in, in a in a way that's easy, right? And repeatable. So so by what we've put together is this PCI applicability guide which says, hey, here's, you know, you as, a, as someone who's covered by PCI DSS uh, as a payment, you know, you're taking payments or, or what have you, um, here's the things you need to configure in OpenShift and, and set it up to meet, you know, the various PCI guidelines. So if you, if, you know, if you follow this guide when setting up your your OpenShift environment, either in your data center or on a, a PCI uh, compatible service provider like an AWS. If you if you follow this guide, in the end, uh, you should be able to meet your PCI uh, compliance needs in a way that's uh, pretty straightforward to configure. You don't have to figure it out, you know, reinvent the wheel with each new deployment. Yeah. So, and that's and it's
0: important. And you know, for we we've had a whole bunch of customers that are, you know, running things in production. They're able to take credit card transactions um, through applications that run an OpenShift. And um, obviously, we we run OpenShift online and, on, and, and OpenShift dedicated that that already had to provide those types of services. So it really was us providing some guidance. Um, it by no means makes us, you know, we're not a, we, we don't give you the stamp that that gets you past your auditor, but it's it's going to get you a very long way down the path of saying, you know, these are all the the guidelines and best practices that you should follow. And and this should get you to a point along with your experience that uh, you and your auditor are going to have a a much, a much better day than than you might have if you weren't prepared for it. Um, Well, listen, there are lots and lots of stuff uh, about the the OpenShift 3.6 release um, that people can find on on the OpenShift blog. So if you go to blog.openshift.com, Tons of, of sort of updates about that. You can see some screenshots of the new service broker and the catalog, some videos of how to configure certain things. Um, but let's let's jump real quick uh, before we get into some of the the questions that we had that we wanted to answer. Um, where can people go if they say, "Hey, that that sounds interesting," or I've been hearing from my colleagues that OpenShift is interesting? Uh, where can they go learn more or get their hands on stuff? How, how can they they go experience OpenShift?
1: Yeah, so, so OpenShift is, you know, obviously it's a, it's a Red Hat product, but like most Red Hat products, it's also a Red Hat project. Um, so you can get, uh, depends how, you know, how hands-on you want to get. You can start with stuff like learn.openshift.com. We have some online learning uh, kind of simulators that can can walk you through various scenarios of using OpenShift. Uh, you can sign up for a free account on our, um, our multi-tenant um, managed OpenShift online. So you can go to OpenShift online and uh, and sign up there, as well as again, like I said, it's an open source project. So you can just get the bit yourself and and play with them. Uh, if you're familiar with Kubernetes Minikube uh, project, we have a, a offshoot of that called uh, MiniShift. So it, it extends that functionality to deploy um, to deploy OpenShift. Uh, there's also a a the OC uh, tool, the actual OpenShift um, command line tool, can deploy. Uh, to things like Docker, so if you if you're running, say Docker for Mac, uh, all you need to do is go to OpenShift Origin, download the OC tool, and just type OC cluster up, and it'll configure your Docker environment and and set up OpenShift on for you that, for you there locally. Yeah.
0: Now, and I, and I think um, you know the, the whole Kubernetes community has done a really good job of of saying, hey, um, if you want to learn this stuff, it should be as easy as running something locally on your laptop so you don't have to go find yourself a bunch of extra resources um, or be able to, to do some stuff online for free. So whether you're using OpenShift online, uh, you're using learn.openshift.com, which is a sort of simulated environment for you know more, more things. The other thing I'll say is um, all of the learn.openshift.com is based off of a a technology and a company that we partner with called Katakoda. So K-A-T-A-C-O-D-A. So if you go to katakoda.com, and we'll put that in the show notes. um, You know, if you want to just learn some basics about Kubernetes, you want to learn the basics of of Docker, uh, some of the other technologies that are out there, like Prometheus for monitoring. Katakoda has been a really, really good partner. Their whole structure is um, you get the online environment, it's all through your browser, and then there are a bunch of structured Kind of uh, online learning courses that you can take that walk you through step by step to get you get you up to speed. So uh, whether you're a newbie or you want to you know kind of expand your existing skills, it's uh, it's a really good platform. And we've been we've loved partnering with those guys. Um, so listen, Tyler, uh, you know this week we don't have a guest. Uh, one of the things we're going to try and do week to week is. Uh, is bring on guests, uh, both thought leaders in the Kubernetes and and containers community, but you know also folks from Red, Red Hat who are you know developing software in this space, uh, you know some some companies that are running this stuff in production. It's always good to get their experience, um, but sometimes it's good just to sort of answer some common questions that we get. So we thought week to week we would uh, you know answer a couple of common questions that we hear every single week. Um, the first one that we get all the time is. Uh OpenShift comes with a built-in container registry. Um so it's a place where you can uh you know keep all your sort of certified containers and so forth. Uh but if I don't want to use that registry or if I want to integrate with a third party one, is that possible or am I sort of forced by OpenShift to to only use the Red Hat one?
1: That's that's the you know the beauty of 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 open and open source is you can absolutely use another uh compatible container registry. So if you want to use you know just as simple as, like, for example, uh, for me, when I'm running it locally or something like that, I just use the, the Docker Hub. Um, you can use, like I said, it comes with a built-in one. You can use our hosted registries. You can run your own. So like, say, if you currently have an internal um, container registry, you can you can point OpenShift at that, too.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, and I know a lot of people have their own kind of security posturing they want to do about it for scanning and signing and other stuff. So, uh, so that's cool. Uh, the second question, and this is one that I don't know that we're going to have kind of a short answer. So maybe we can give people some resources. Um, One of the things that comes up a lot is the question of how do I run a container? Do I run it as root? Do I, you know, do I have to give it full privileges of the host or do I run it as a, some sort of user? Like gives folks a sense of like, what are, what are some good resources that they can go to to figure out when it might make sense to run as root or not run as root? Or, you know, even why does this question come up?
1: Sure. I, I get the, for for most people, the the shorter answer is for should I run containers as root? Is no. And the, the longer answer is no. <laughs> um, the, the the much longer answer is yes. There's some specific use cases where um, you need access to resources that you wouldn't otherwise be able to. So, for example, let's say uh, uh, devices. So, like today, there's no way to manage. Uh, things like GPUs and Kubernetes, but you could mount those devices into a container and it would definitely need, uh, you'd need root to access that, uh, lower ports, lower TCPIP IP ports. Um, there's a list of different things where you definitely need to have root. Uh, what's been good is over time, uh, more and more things that used to require root uh, have moved out of that. So for example, some more of the advanced networking things you used to have to uh, run it as root, but now you don't have to. Uh, so, so that keeps getting better and better. And there's a lot of people in the community working on, uh, you know, working on this. You know, both red Hatters as well as externally, people at Google, people like Jesse Fazell, you know, bringing new um, features into the container engines to be able to limit the number of containers that runs root. So your your average application container shouldn't. Um, but there's there's there are some exceptions to that. Um, we'll, we'll definitely have some uh, good resources to go out and uh, and and kind of figure out if you need that. Yeah. Um, but the, basically, the best way to do it is to you know start not running as root and then keep increasing your privileges and see if you can get around it um, before you d- fall back to that. You know, the easiest way it's it's like the old Windows day is like, you know run as administrator. All your developers are are running as administrator when you know the software gets installed. Uh, it ends up having to run as administrator too, and a lot of times it's not really for any good reason
0: right right yeah and I know the question comes up a lot for us because by default um, openshift doesn't allow containers to run as root um, so we, we we like to think of it as sort of secure by default um, but it you know it does for for a lot of people that will pull things off of docker hub like like you said uh, you do it sometimes but but lots of people do it um, you know a lot of those containers that are out there that are published by somebody uh, you know by default sort of want to run root not necessarily because they need to but just you know, it was a setting they didn't want to go set. Um, so we'll put some good, we'll put some good resources in the show notes. Uh, like you said, uh, folks like uh, Jesse Frizzell, who used to be one of the, the primary maintainers of, of Docker and still does it at, at uh, Google um, has some really in- good insight into there. So we'll put that out there. The other thing I thought was sort of interesting, um, the folks at Bitnami who run one of the largest, Uh, I guess, repositories of, you know, they run the Amazon Marketplace repositories. Uh, They have a huge set of repositories for containers. Um, They've just recently gone through and kind of revamped a a huge swath of the containers that they support um, to kind of be OpenShift compatible, meaning, you know, they went through, they figured out which ones really didn't need to run root. um, And there's a whole set of those that are now sort of, you know, OpenShift first, if you will. And I thought that was pretty cool because it, it says, they wouldn't have done that work if, if a lot of people weren't, A, using OpenShift, but sort of running into this challenge of, you know, should I do it? Does it open a security hole? And, and they're trying to make that simpler. So we'll, we'll put that in the show notes as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's the, the I mean, one of the, one of the interesting things of, of containers, right? So in Linux, there's no such thing as containers. It's a couple different kernel features kind of slapped together by the container engines to to kind of make this logical thing. So there's, so the, yeah, the downsides of that is, you know, you're, you're much more reliant on the kernel, and uh, but the, the upside is it gives you a lot of flexibility. So it's, it's interesting to see some of the new uh, technologies, you know, like, you know, we leverage things like SE Linux uh, on containers to, to kind of secure them some more. There's things like AppArmor, uh, different set comp profiles. There's a lot of interesting security work happening in containers. Which I think is, uh, is is something that we've been you know, kind of really needing. Which which we treated VMs, you know, in the in the virtualization world, sort of like physical servers when it came to security, for the most part. And I think this is you know with the move to containers, we're actually seeing um, people take a closer look at, at securing these applications in a much more granular fashion.
0: Yep. No, it's a, definitely a good thing, and especially as people are wanting to run containers across multiple clouds and environments that you may not have physical access to. Uh, the more you're thinking about security, and the more security kind of is there by default or smart decisions are made by default. It's, it's definitely a good thing. Well, listen, uh, Tyler, uh, I'm going to wrap up the first show. Um, you know, thanks to everybody for listening so far. Um, you know, like I said, we're going to get this. This will be published every Monday morning. A um, couple of places you guys can follow along with us. This will be out published uh, via iTunes. Uh, it'll be you know available for, for Apple via iTunes. It'll be available through the Google Play Store, Stitcher, all of your sort of podcast uh, catcher tools that you can expect. Um, if you want to follow along with us, um, you can follow at PodCuddle or P-O-D-C-T-L on Twitter. Uh, if you guys want to send us questions for the weekly questions, you can send them to uh, podcuddle at gmail dot com, um, and we'll. Uh you know, the best questions we will uh, try and get answered for you. And then, um, you know, we will also include this uh, every week over at blog.openshift.com. Uh, if you search for hashtag podcuddle, uh, you'll be able to, uh, to find those shows uh, week to week. But uh, folks, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, excited about getting this kicked off and we hope to uh, to make it a part of your uh, your weekly podcast listening. So thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week.